Hey guys, welcome back to the show. My name is Lauren and this is Liam. Hello. And we are so glad you guys are joining us tonight, especially our live viewers. We have a great show today. We're going to be starting off with all of the craziness that went down at the VMAs this week. Tons of just celebrity degeneracy is how yeah. I'm thinking of it. It was pretty depressing to watch some of that stuff at any rate. Yeah, I mean, I hope if aliens are monitoring us, they don't think we're all like that. That's all I'm going to say. Then we have a discussion about an intersectional feminist who has apparently alienated literally all of her friends, and she's mad about it. She's blaming their whiteness. We'll talk about that. Uh, then Dave Chappelle is back uh, on the comedy scene, and he has this outrageous special that is making all of the right people angry. And finally, we're going to close things off with a very strange story of a women's shelter and sort of rape crisis clinic being boycotted by feminists. We'll explain why uh, when the time comes. Uh, and before we get into that, though, I do have a special message from a sponsor. About this time every year, we're coming up in, on to September. Our attention is, of course, going to turn to the anniversary of 9-11. Uh, it's a moment when we reflect on those who gave their lives that day, uh, firefighters and victims, everybody, and those who would pay the ultimate sacrifice in the years to come, defending our liberties in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. So now here we are, 18 years later, and we find ourselves seemingly in a state of permanent war. We're warned that the Islamic State is poised to make a comeback, and we watch as the crescent of Iranian influence extends its long shadow. In Afghanistan, our leaders are negotiating the terms of peace ironically with the Taliban, not usually known for peace. So I want to tell you guys about a recent film that ties all of this together. It's called Mosul, and it's the story of the last battle of the Iraq war, documenting the 2016 to 2017 fight against ISIS in Iraq's second largest city, that is Mosul. It's directed by former CIA officer Daniel Gabriel, and Mosul, it's, it's much more than a war story. It takes you on the journey uh, up the Tigris River into the heart of darkness, which is the ISIS caliphate, revealing an apocalyptic battle against two unyielding enemies, the Islamic extremism and the sectarian mistrust and hatred that will remain long after the politicians declare victory. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, we can you can check it out. It's on iTunes, Amazon, and Vimeo. You can visit www.mosul-film.com to find out more. Let's get into the VMAs. Now, obviously, if you are keeping up with music culture, the VMAs are the MTV Video Music Awards. First of all, why? Why are you still keeping up with music culture? Come on. Yeah, I mean, I personally, I anytime one of these award shows comes around, I'm reminded just how out of touch I am with like today's youth culture. Yeah. I I increasingly I know story, fewer so. and fewer of the people that are performing, but it is good content. It's true. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, we, I, at least I was following along on social media as it was happening, taking in all the interesting parts. So you gentle viewer wouldn't have to watch it. Uh, I didn't really watch all of it either, but I did, I did get the good parts. Um, so I feel like now more than ever, there's this disconnect between celebrities and the average person, right? I mean, we're not just talking about outrageously different amounts of wealth, but just like lifestyle and values in general. Like, I don't think there's ever been a time when Hollywood was so disconnected from the average person. Like, in, in no way are they representative of the people who are probably listening to them, enjoying their music and stuff like that. I think they're in their own kind of echo chamber that all these Hollywood elites think the same way and they pressure each other to think the same way. Yeah. But it, yeah, there's just a complete wall between well, them as celebrities, what they are, and everyday individuals, whether you're left or right. These Hollywood elites are totally different from you. Well, what it reminds me of, it's increasingly looking like, you know, the capital people from The Hunger Game with all their crazy <sighs> hairstyles. That's what Hollywood looks like. Honestly, That's what more and more they actually look like. The red carpet 
not even kidding. Yeah, it, that's incredible. what it looks like. Um, so there are a couple of things that I want to touch upon from the show. Uh, first off, let's start with the outfit. So celebrities on the red carpet, they always wear like the most outrageous things and they're, they're trying to get attention, right? I don't think they think it looks good because there's no way anyone could think that looks good. They're they're wearing it. They're like peacocking, right? Trying yeah. to make headlines, get their face out there. I mean, essentially- I, I sympathize with them actually. I can imagine because you got to remember at the end of the day, celebrities are mostly regular people. They were at one point. Yeah. And then you go up and you have to like dress up and have thousands of people or hundreds of people taking pictures of you and they'll talk about what you're wearing and it's like- that's, that would stress me out a lot. I respect those celebrities yeah. who it's like, you know, they're trying to look good, but then some of them take it the other way where it's like, they're not, they're just trying to get attention, right? There's no effort to like appear stylish, stylist. They just want to, I guess, grab headlines. Right. Um, so one person's red carpet, especially this year, has been getting a huge amount of attention. It's this beauty guru. Her name is Nikita Dragon. So she's not actually uh, a musician. Why non-musicians go to the VMAs, I don't fully understand. But we have a, a photo of it, an insert that we can throw up. So she is essentially, um, you know, she's got, she has men on leashes, right? Like the what she's actually wearing is like the sequin getup for anyone who's listening on an audio platform. It looks pretty good, aside from she's got some like weird nipple stuff going on, but it's not the most immodest outfit on the carpet. But then for some reason, she has three men in collars and chains on a leash. On their knees. On their knees. I don't think they were on their knees the whole time, though. Not that that makes... That's not the worst part of it. It doesn't really make a difference what they're doing. Um, yeah, so obviously a lot of people are talking about her outfit. And I saw on Twitter, she's now defending it as like this feminist statement, as a symbol of her as a woman taking power back from men. Um, look, it's fine. You did it to get attention. You're getting attention. It worked. We're talking about it. A lot of other people are talking about it. Like, just just own it. You know, you don't have to try to make it seem as if you're making this huge socially conscious whatever. You're trying to make us talk about you and it's working. Um, but it's funny because people on the whole, I was actually impressed with how in agreement everyone is that this is not a good look um and even like when she was trying to come out and defend it as feminist there are a bunch of people like to my pleasure saying hang on isn't feminism supposed to be about like equality not subjugating men which it kind of looks like you're trying to do based on the fact that you have them literally on collars uh, and then like the more woke people who maybe would have bought into that whole oh no it's just about feminism it's funny they were upset because one of the guys that she had on a chain was actually black okay I thought that was, I didn't know if that was progressive or like regressive. Well, you know apparently I mean? they're not happy with that. I was like, oh, she's got like, it looks like a white dude, a black dude, and a, and a, what, maybe a Hispanic dude, something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's like a multiracial like, entourage of male slaves. Right? But, yeah, but apparently no, uh, not a good look to put a black guy, they were saying, like in a collar on, on a chain, which is, I mean, I'm sure if she had only white guys, they would still be complaining um about yeah, not being yeah, inclusive really. enough it's in her quite, feminist statement quite a weird world, um it? i don't know just just don't put anybody on collars and, and chains on the red carpet i feel like is a a way this all could have been avoided um and so okay the next spectacle i want to show you guys this is a performance by an artist named lizzo this is what i'm saying like i'm totally out of touch with youth culture i, I don't yeah lizzo before. um she's actually like i hadn't heard of her before this I think she's a good singer. I like the song, but the performance has obviously been getting a lot of attention. Um, as you'll see, it's 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 booty centric, to say the least. And we have that video clip. Oh, 
kind of like a, a we're we're like a modern day Sodom and Gomorrah. It's it's Just getting waiting for the salt. Yeah, it's getting increasingly hard to defend like Western cultures. Like this was the right option, guys. You should all follow us. Yeah, no, I mean, look, she's I had never heard of her. Like I said before, I don't have any like bias against her. I think she's a good singer, clearly a good performer. I kind of like the song. It's catchy. I wouldn't mind listening to it. I just don't understand why why so much with the butts. Like, right, you have like a giant inflatable ass. You have assless chaps. There's a lot of butt going on. Like, in my opinion, she's a strong enough performer where she doesn't need all of those gimmicks. I, I don't know why this is what like music and performance has become. I remember when it was like 2001, Britney Spears was performing, I think it was at the VMAs and she had that uh, like that snake around her and she was performing I'm a Slave for You. I've been in a Britney Spears kick, so I've been watching a lot of her old performances. Anyway, um, and that was really controversial because it was like, you know, she had a, a tiny like little top on and she was dancing with the snake and people were freaking out. And now it's like, we have totally just there's like no no limit anymore it's like whatever craziness debauchery on stage you want to do you just go for it just absolutely go for it now um yeah and it's like i don't know i i wouldn't watch want my children watching this kind of thing maybe that's just me but it's like mm. and also i mean in my opinion the this isn't as serious or as concerning as the butts everywhere but you also had in her performance that like feel good message of like everyone deserves to feel good yeah. yeah, I mean, it's not the most harmful thing going on at the VMAs, I think, but it's just... No. Well, it's just hedonism. It's yeah, literally it's like, hedonism. If, if there's one know? thing I, I learned about this person from that performance is maybe she should feel less good. Like, maybe she should tone it down a little bit. We discussed this in the last show, but like, hey, let's bring back a little bit of shame to society. You know, just like a little bit to the point where like maybe we start wearing pants that cover our butts. I don't know. Mm. Call me old-fashioned. So uh, another thing we saw at this award show is that we have celebrities doing what they've been doing for a while now, which is making everything political. And, uh, you know, a, a few years ago, I did make a video about celebrities getting into politics, and I think I didn't express myself well, and, and people were kind of pointing it out to me, and like, fair enough, I hear you guys. It's not that I think celebrities shouldn't be allowed to have political opinions, because everybody should be allowed to have political opinions. Um, it's just that their political opinions don't mean more just because they're a great singer or actor, right? I don't think we should all be stopping to listen about what uh, who's that obnoxious guy who seems really pretentious, who was in all the Oceans movies? George Clooney. Oh, yeah, George okay. Clooney. Okay, yeah. I'm not waiting to see what George Clooney has to say about President Trump. I don't think any of us should be. And like, it's also that, look, if my dentist, anytime I went to get a cleaning, was going on about how much he hate Trumps, I, w I wouldn't go to that dentist anymore. If I had a mechanic who anytime I went in for an oil change was going on about some open borders crazy nonsense, I wouldn't go to that mechanic anymore. A dentist is the best one because it's like, you can't, you can't even even respond to them. I have had dentists who try to talk to you, like not just at you, but engage in a conversation while they're cleaning your teeth. It's like, you know, I can't answer. I don't know. Like, this is great that you're friendly, but because it's like awkward trying to talk with someone in your mouth. That's what she said. Okay, moving on. Um, yeah, so I mean, don't mean to hate on celebrities being political too much, but I think what really bothers people is when they insert it into their like regular work. I think you should be able to go to a dentist just to have your teeth cleaned. I think you should be able to watch an award show about music videos and just have it be about music videos, 
right? I mean, you can do whatever you want in your own time, celebrities, but it's like literally don't expect people who enjoy your music to tune in to hear you talk about your political beliefs because they don't care. And like literally they don't care. I, I was looking it up. Apparently this year's VMAs were the lowest rated ever in terms of viewership. So look at that. Um, one example we have of this uh, French Montana. I think it's French Montana. Again, I'm not up with what the kids are listening to. And Alison Brie, who is a, she was from Community, she's an actress. Um, so they were presenting an award, I think. And the clip we have, it cuts out a bit at the beginning, but for context, Frenchman uh, French Montana was talking about being an immigrant when this exchange happens. And we have that video. We are the people that make this country. And I feel like I want to be the voice. Immigrants aren't what makes the United States. And I say that as someone who thinks that immigrants can be an awesome part of the country, whether that's the US, Canada, UK, like whatever. But it's kind of a slapped, slap in the face of the native population to say you are the country, right? Like if, if immigrants are the country, then, you know, their own countries would be just as great. There'd be no reason to come over here. Okay, clearly we, we see that's not the case. You could say it's, it's part of what makes the country great. But I, I don't understand the need to make immigrants, the people who are not Americans, the best part of America. It can be part of it, sure, but it's just, it's very strange to me. And also, I mean, Alison Brie, uh, I don't know what part of the Constitution you, you are referring to that might give yeah. people the right to just come in uh, to the country. I'm not sure. Uh, maybe she's referring to the detention centers, which, like, I don't think anybody likes them. But the way I see it is, like, they could they'd send them back then, right? send it back there we go uh you know maybe uh, apply like i i know i don't know online or through an embassy and wait until you're processed that way instead of just showing up just my two cents uh, but the biggest news hands down that came to us from the vmas is probably taylor swift so taylor swift she received an award and she's known or she was known for a long time for being apolitical she never really talked about politics and it actually became a meme that there were like a handful of people, mainly just on social media, who were really bugging her to make political statements. And, and no, the rest of us didn't care. We don't turn to Taylor Swift to know who to vote for. Um, and she didn't say anything throughout the 2016 election cycle. Apparently, she's changing her tune now because she is really pushing hard the usual progressive celebrity shtick. So she was going up to receive an award and she had this to say about some, it's like equal rights legislation or whatever. There was a petition and there still is a petition. Woo! the Equality Act, which basically just says we all deserve equal rights under the law. It now has half a million signatures, which, which is five times the amount that it would need to warrant a response from the White House. I mean, the thing about Taylor Swift is she is big enough at this point where I doubt this is going to alienate anybody. I mean, People who love Taylor Swift, they love her hardcore. And honestly, her fan base, it's probably what young girls, millennial women, they probably agree with her politics anyway. It's probably just going to be fine. But just like for the record, so the rest of us can know what's going on. Um, the, the Trump administration isn't just like randomly and Republicans aren't randomly just trying to deny rights to gay people. Uh, it's not as black and white as she's making it seem. And the White House did respond to Taylor Swift. 
because that's the 2019 timeline that we're living in. President Donald Trump did respond to Taylor Swift's demand for equal rights protections. Okay, so from Fox News, we have this article. It says the White House responded to Taylor Swift after the singer championed the Equality Act at the 2019 MTV Video Music Awards. It says, quote, the Trump administration absolutely opposes discrimination of any kind and supports the equal treatment of all. However, the House passed bill in its current form is filled with poison pills that threatened to undermine parental and conscious right, conscience rights, said the statement from a White House spokesperson. And we also have a little bit more of an explanation about why exactly the, you know, Republicans, White House wouldn't be in favor of this. Um, again, from Fox News, it says at a news conference Thursday, but this is an older article, Republicans said the bill in question would jeopardize religious freedom by requiring acceptance of a particular ideology about sexuality and sexual identity. So it says Representative Vicki Hartzler called the legislation grossly misnamed and said it is anything but equalizing. The bill hijacks the 1964 Civil Rights Act to create a brave new world of discrimination based on an undefined terms of sexual orientation and gender identity. Hartzer said the legislation threatens women's sports, shelters and schools and could silence female athletes, domestic abuse survivors and other women, she said. Uh, some critics also said the bill could jeopardize Title IX, the law prohibiting sex discrimination in federally funded education programs. All right, so just... The reason why I bring this up is because, look, I'm sure Taylor Swift, in all of her infinite wisdom and infinite goodness, really does just want everyone to be treated the same and have equal rights. But the thing about celebrities is that they are not political geniuses, okay? There's clearly more going on here about this specific bill than Taylor Swift, I think, probably knows, understands, or maybe even cares. And I, you look, I, I think for a lot of people, all of this political virtue signaling it's just getting a little bit it's getting a little bit old like i said the vmas had the lowest ratings they've had i think ever and i think this is the third year in a row where ratings are just consistently low and it's not that these people aren't performing as good as they used to it's not that the music isn't as good as it used to be i think it's like literally just shut up do your job I, I, it's, it's as simple as that. Uh, you know, best of luck to Taylor Swift, though. I'm sure she's still going to be making oodles of money. And now the media leftists will also be on her side and not bothering her. She's not going to care about what we say, but that's just how I view it. Okay, our next segment is kind of a sad one if you're anything like me and a little bit of a softie. So, say Syrah Rao, and I think that's how you say your name. Probably isn't. I've probably just committed a microaggression, but she is one of, if not the most woke, hardcore intersectional feminists on Twitter. Like she is so woke that a lot of people actually think she is a, par a parody account. Like she she's not though. She's completely not. Um, you know, she's real. She's verified. Uh, a while back, she actually did appear on Sargon's channel. Uh, I think she ended up rage quitting. They were doing like this debate conversation thing that I don't think she's, she finished. But no, she's a real person with these beliefs, which trust me is scary in and of itself. Um, but the other day she published a thread which ended up going pretty viral um, where she essentially, she describes how she's lost all or if not most of her close friends, her close female friends, because they didn't want to get on board with intersectionality. It, it, that it, it's awful. Um, a lot of people found it funny. I myself found it more sad than anything, uh, just because I'm a, like I said, a softie like that. But here we have the thread here. 
Um, she starts off by saying, quite a few black and brown women have recently asked me how they can help their white women friends understand white privilege in the hopes that they'll start their anti-racism journey, in the hopes that their white women friends can be trustworthy. Automatically, premise is just super weird. Um, you know, I'm mixed race, I have white friends, I have, like, Asian friends, black friends. I, I would never, like, in my mind, classify my friends based on race and then think, oh man... I don't know if I can trust that one. She's black. Like, that's, that's, that's awful, okay? If you're doing that to your friends, you're probably not a good friend yourself. You should, uh, you should try to work on that. She continues, though, Here's what I've learned. Whiteness is the most powerful drug on the planet, and if you yourself don't want to wean yourself off of whiteness, it can't and won't happen. You have to not just want to wean yourself, you have to desperately want to wean yourself. So, a lot of people have been wondering what exactly she means by whiteness. How can someone become not white or wean themselves off, sorry, whiteness when they are white? You have to understand, according to these people, whiteness is a mentality, right? It's, whiteness is living with that the privileges that white people enjoy and not using your whiteness to benefit, you know, more marginalized groups. It's crazy and it doesn't make sense, but that's just where they're coming from. She continues, I was a white feminist until 2016. I was deeply self-loathing and internally oppressed. Nearly all my closest friends were white women. These women were in my wedding and I in theirs. They cradled me when I wept for my dead mother. They would have done anything for me. Except give up whiteness. I spent one full year meeting them for coffee, drinks, lunch, dinner. I sent them articles. I wrote articles. I sent them those. Rather than show an interest in awakening, nearly all of them dumped me. Okay, so here's where it gets sad. She describes these close friends of hers, her closest friends, you know, being at each other's weddings, uh, comforting her when her mother died. Apparently, they would have done anything for her. Um... Accept give up whiteness is how she says it, but really it's accept sign on to intersectionality. That seems to be kind of how she's describing it to be anti-whiteness. And apparently she spent one full year trying to convince them otherwise. And look, this isn't the friend's fault, right? They apparently gave her a full year of putting up with her trying to convert them to her craziness. And they stuck around for most of it. So honestly, that's more than I think a lot of people would do. I very strongly believe you can have friends with different political opinions, but look, if if every time you hang out with the other person, they're trying to convince you you're wrong, maybe convince you that your race is oppressive or whatever it is, I think that's when it comes to a point where like, all right, you can maybe start to back out of that and not feel guilty, right? She says all of them dumped her. Sounds a little bit more to me, and I think a lot of people, like she's the one who was alienating them for their political beliefs. Uh, she says, dumping has involved a pinch of ghosting, a dash of, I'm really worried about you, we are really worried about you. It's involved leaving me and my family out of group plans and pretending it was an accident. It's involved leaving me out of group plans and not pretending it was an accident. Some of these women weren't even really my friends before, but have bonded over their mutual disdain for me and my craziness. They've bonded around whiteness. Like, again... It's kind of sad because she has in her mind built up this like anti-white narrative. She tried to push it on her white friends. Uh, they didn't, I guess, like to be called racist or oppressive, so they backed off, which is the normal thing to do when your friend turns into a raving lunatic over a prolonged period of time. But all it's done for her, who apparently lacks any self-awareness, uh, is reinforce the idea that whiteness is bad. It's like, 
look, if if one of your friends leaves you because of like your political opinions, that's not good. Maybe they weren't a good friend, but it's like if all of your friends, all of them are ditching you, maybe it's you, right? Maybe that's the point where you start to think, hmm, wonder what I'm contributing to this. Uh, and this is this is really funny. It's got a lot of people. She says this is no different than the KKK. Yeah, that's the same. Instead of robes, they coalesce around brunch, weddings, spin classes. I no longer harbor anger towards them. I'd be lying if I said it didn't make me sad from time to time, because it does. She says the overarching feelings I have are a understanding. Understanding how they are all just reading from their whiteness script, a script they received before they were born, and B, fear. Fear that if the intense love they had for me and my family wasn't enough to reflect on their own white supremacy, what hope do we have? Those who love us still love whiteness more, by a long shot, the most powerful drug on the planet. So, I mean, just like the fact that she would call her friends who as she says, were close to her, loved her, she would still accuse them of having white supremacy because they're not intersectional enough. It's like, you're insane. Like, and I mean, that to me was probably really hurtful hurtful for her friends that she would be accusing them of being white supremacists. And it's like, just because your crazy cult says that I don't like white people, it doesn't mean it's true. Um, it's interesting to see this from her perspective, but like ultimately... I think she she was to blame for these friendships falling apart. And I mean, it's it's depressing as well because usually when people are like politically uh, radicalized, if there is something to bring them back to the light to kind of calm them down, it would be friends or family who have different political views than you who could kind of say, let's calm calm things down a little bit maybe back up a little bit. Uh, but no, it doesn't work when you alienate all of them. So I guess this this was just something I wanted to bring up to say or to point out how damaging and how toxic this ideology really can be. And like, it's, it's not just for the people around her, but it's like for her own life. Uh, you know, I'm sure that she's obviously not a very happy person. She's alienated all of her friends. She clearly has a lot of resentment toward anyone. It's like, who is this ideology helping, right? It's not helping anybody. It's causing more racial divides, causing more interpersonal divides. And it's just, I mean, people can laugh at this if they want. I chuckled at the KKK, but in spin classes part, but honestly, it's just more than anything, uh, this is sad. All right, uh, so next up we have Dave Chappelle. Uh, so he has a new Netflix uh, special out. It's called Sticks and Stones, and it has a lot of people talking. Uh, basically, everybody loves it. Anyone on social media, it's like 95% positive. Uh, it's getting rave, rave reviews. And personally, to be honest, uh, I always found Dave Chappelle a little too R-rated for my liking. Uh, if you don't like mature humor, if you don't like a lot of swearing, don't recommend you check it out. It is definitely not child-friendly, but uh, it was it was really funny. Uh, this is the most I've laughed in a really long time. Uh, and like I said, everyone is loving it, except for, incidentally, uh, leftist journalists who are not that impressed. So, I mean, it, it's essentially the most politically incorrect piece of comedy I've seen uh, since maybe Ricky Gervais's uh, Humanity is the one that he did. And that's another good one if you haven't seen it. 
and you're okay with vulgar humor, I recommend you check it out. Uh, so we have a promo clip of what we're talking about to give you guys an idea of what the material is like. And this is one that actually Netflix has been promoting on their social media. The next one's a little harder. I want to see if you can guess who it is I'm doing an impression of. Uh, duh, hey, duh, if you do anything wrong in your life, duh, and I find out about it, I'm gonna try to take everything away from you. And I don't care what I find out. Could be today, tomorrow, 15, 20 years from now, if I find out you're fucking duh, finished. That's you. <laughs> That's what the audience sounds like to me. So that was the first promo or first part of the special I saw before I actually watched the whole thing. And honestly, I didn't know that this was coming out. This was, that promo was really my first glance into this. And uh, yeah, he got me good at the beginning, but I, I laughed at the end. That's one of the clips from the show that's gone viral. And, you know, in the special, Chappelle really takes on things like cancel culture, LGBT activism, Me Too, Jesse Smollett, just pretty much everything people uh, from Vice and Vox have been talking about for the past few years, that's what he craps on. So uh, if, if you're into politically incorrect stuff, seriously, you're gonna love it. I haven't heard anybody who knows how to take a joke say that they didn't laugh at least a little bit. And um, he actually in one point says something along the lines of, I can't live in the world you're t trying to create. And to me, that's just that's so true. And I think that's why so many people are responding so positively to this. It's just for for the past few years, I feel like a lot of people have been walking on eggshells, right? Unable to fully breathe almost because we're so afraid of saying the wrong thing, offending someone, and then having this authoritarian mob jump down our throats and try to cancel us. So to have a huge comedian like that, just say the most outrageous, like I don't, I don't get offended easily. I hope you guys know that by now. But there were times in the show where I, I, I had like my hands clamped over my mouth. I couldn't believe it. He he talks about Michael Jackson and how he's clearly not a pedophile because Macaulay Culkin didn't, says he didn't molest him. But if he were a pedophile, obviously Macaulay Culkin would have been who he molested, right? And it's just like, okay, it's stuff like that. You have to be brave to say it. And yeah, he's, he's nothing if not brave. And... Um, something that I really like, and we saw that in the first promo, is that he does this sort of like bait and switch. He kind of sets you up, maybe believing that he's about to do the same politically correct woke comedian spiel that we now see from people like Amy Schumer or Sarah Silverman 2.0, but then he just like decimates that. Uh, we have another clip. Uh, this one's about abortion, by the way, and at first, I, I saw this in the special. I didn't know where he was going with it. And uh, again, he didn't fail to deliver. This is even better than the first one, in my opinion. I'm not for abortion. I'm not for it, but I'm not against it either. The right to choose is their unequivocal right. Not only do I believe they have the right to choose, I believe that they shouldn't have to consult anybody. And ladies, to be fair to us, I also believe if you decide to have the baby, a man should not have to pay. If you can kill this motherfucker, I can at least abandon him. It's my money, my choice. It's a it's a bold move to joke about abortion in this political climate, but it is especially a bold move to joke about abortion when the punchline of your joke is that abortion maybe isn't that great, right? Because I I agree with him, right? It, it only makes sense that if women are able to just like full on abort their kid, 
that guy should be able to kind of bail out of financial support. And like he says, but if that doesn't make sense, then maybe none of it makes sense. And I think he's he's absolutely right on that. But the thing with his comedy is that, right, there, there are things that he jokes about where you know that's not actually what he believes. Like, you know, he, he doesn't think Macaulay Culkin for a pedophile is just too hot to not molest clearly a joke uh but you know then you have things about the stuff like abortion and cancel culture where i think he is making a deeper message or commentary on society and i think where people get upset is when they're unable to tell the difference between the two right where they're not able to read between the lines of the the deeper context of what he's trying to say and apparently people in slate from slate are exactly those type of people. They were not fans of uh, of his comedy special. They have this article that they released, uh, Dave Chappelle's Sticks and Stones Fights for the Rights of the Already Powerful. In, in his special, he talks about cancel culture and how it's affected people like Kevin Hart and Louis C.K. Uh, it's, it's good points, right? The idea that we can't make jokes anymore, the, the idea that Louis C.K.'s behavior, although kind of gross, he's one of those ones where it's like, all right, but but did he hurt anybody? Is the response that it got from the public really proportionate to what actually happened? Those are valid, valid points to make for anyone to make. But according to Slate, that's just simply him defending celebrities. And we're going to read some of this now. It, uh, the author says, Watching Dave Chappelle's latter-day comedy special is like dropping in on a rascally uncle who doesn't know or doesn't care how much he's disappointing you. He was more clever than anyone you'd met up until that point, and there was something impressive about the lengths he'd go to make you laugh. Then he went away for a long time, and while you changed with the times, he fashioned himself a badge of honor for definitely not doing so. Now his jokes make you wince. Each visit reminds you that your face is technically capable of laughing and cringing at the same time, but it certainly doesn't feel good to do so. Despite it all, Uncle Dave insists it's not that his viewpoints have gotten stale, everyone else just got so much more sensitive. Chappelle rails against the perceived softness of many different groups, Louis C.K.'s victims, Kevin Hart's detractors in the gay community, and Michael Jackson's survivors whom he says he doesn't believe anyway. Chappelle also directs his exasperation at his own audience, or at least the kind of viewers who aren't interested in supporting artists and celebrities responsible for horrendous things. If you do anything wrong in your life, he ventriloquizes, he rent, wow, ventriloquizes? Okay, uh, don't know how to say that word. And I find out about it, he continues, I'm going to try to take everything away from you. But as is so often the case with those who accuse others of having thin skin, it's mostly projection. I don't think we can always take Chappelle at his word. His evident obsession with the details of the Jackson case in particular gives the impression that he accepts more of the allegations than he professes to. He'd rather just reach for the nearest narrative or the most puckish punchline than grapple with messy truths. But he obviously also takes pride in serving as an oracle, or at least for the kinds of audience members who whistle and applaud when he calls Jackson's accusers liars or evokes the right's gay agenda by declaring homophobia is the single biggest taboo in show business. If his jokes were so funny on their own, would Chappelle have to spend so much time justifying his right to tell them? So clearly this person doesn't understand humor, right? This is one of the people who Chappelle is railing against, and it's so obvious because Right, he accuses Chappelle of just not having changed with the times when everyone else has, and that's why he has to spend so much time justifying his own jokes when the rest of us 
agree with him. His jokes are still funny and his justifications themselves of why he should be able to tell these jokes are hilarious. But I mean, one of the things I will say is that he does talk about Michael Jackson, uh, that the whole case, the allegations, the Finding Neverland fiasco. I actually... I don't think Michael Jackson was on the up and up. Uh, You know, I think even just the stuff that people admit to him spending time with kids and like that in of itself is inappropriate. Uh, But here's the thing, even as someone who doesn't agree with him about Michael Jackson, it's still funny. The jokes are still hilarious. I don't need to agree with his political take in this instance to laugh about it, but clearly that that's not a viewpoint that the slate people share and and by the way guys i do just want to take this opportunity to tell you that if you're enjoying the so- show so far and you're watching live you can of course give us a super chat we're going to be uh around after this show is over on the same stream to answer any q a's read all of your comments questions and concerns uh but if not if you want to go the extra length you can of course always head on over to blazetv.com slash lauren and subscribe using the code lauren to save money on your annual subscription uh not only do you save i think it's 10 percent, but you also get a ton of other ten dollars sorry you also get a ton of other great shows to watch um Yeah, so Slate, not impressed with Dave Chappelle. Uh, Apparently, though, neither were, uh, neither were the people at National Review. They also took issue with it. And uh, I think Vox or Vice had some unkind things to say to him as well. But look, ultimately, you don't need to think Dave Chappelle is super funny. You don't need to think that he's right about abortion or, or whatever. I think the main takeaway that he would want you to agree with is that he shouldn't be canceled just for saying inappropriate things. Um, you know, so far, uh, people from Slate and I think it's like Vice or Vox, they're, I think, not trying to cancel him. They're so far just saying that he's not funny, but, uh, you know, we'll see how much this outrage builds to uh, because oftentimes it, it can get pretty bad over a period of a few days or even weeks uh, before it really comes to a head. I'm hoping that we've heard the end of this, though. Okay, uh, next up, we have the story of, this This is a strange one, and actually I want to thank, I think it's basically Kim, who follows me on Twitter for suggesting this story. Um, sometimes I ask you guys for stories you want me to comment on. She's the one, or I hope it's a she. She sent me this, and I just want to say thank you. Shout out to her. Um, so this is about TERFs, or trans-exclusionary radical feminists. Um, If you haven't heard of the term before, these are feminists who generally don't accept trans women as women or trans men as men. Um, And they don't themselves refer to each other as TERFs. They see that as kind of like a slur uh, against them. And before any of you say, oh, so they're feminists with a brain or they're feminists who make sense, the reasons that they don't accept trans men or trans women as what they identify as are very different than the reasons that maybe Ben Shapiro might have for not accepting them for what they identify as, right? Um, So from what I gather, a lot of them believe that trans women are just men trying to sneak into women-only spaces, and trans men, on the other hand, are just women who have grown to hate their own bodies as a result of the patriarchy. So they're just kind of like self-loathing women who are therefore trying to be men, almost like gender traitors, right? So that's their view of trans men and trans women, which are like obviously very different from the approach that you know, a conservative or right-wing person might take uh, to the whole trans ideology, even though they both 
generally disagree with it, okay? So the reason why I bring this up is that there is a women's shelter uh, in Vancouver. It's called, uh, it's a women's shelter and rape relief clinic. And they've had some run-in with feminist activists that actually caused them to lose their city funding. Uh, so the shelter, it's called the Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter. And uh, according to what they have on their site, this is who they serve. It says, we are the longest standing rape crisis center in Canada. Since 1973, our group has responded to close to 46,000 women seeking our support in their escape from male violence. It says, since we opened our transition house in 1981, we have housed over 3,000 women and over 2,600 children. The operation of our rape crisis center and transition house are forms of direct action developed for women by women in the 1970s as part of the second wave of the North American women's movement. Movement. More than just providing immediate safety, we offer a place to group, analyze, strategize, and fight back against male violence. Now, upon reading that, you may be thinking, why on earth would feminists try to take away their funding? This sounds like an awesome feminist initiative, right? Helping women, helping women who have been victimized specifically. Um, the thing is, though, apparently this women's shelter uh, limits its treatment and its services to biological women so they like they won't house or accept trans women but they curiously enough have said that they would accept trans men right so they're saying they only cater to biological females and this is what the national post reports on a that this whole situation they're running with feminists it says vancouver rape relief and women's shelter canada one of the oldest rape crisis centers has been stripped of city funding after refusing to rescind its policy of only serving female-born women. In a statement, the organization said they were the victim of discrimination against women in the name of inclusion and accused Vancouver City Council of trying to coerce us to change our position. Meanwhile, the measure was cheered by activists who have long singled out Vancouver rape relief as a bastion of trans-exclusionary behavior. After the vote, Vancouver City Councilor Christine Boyle posted a tweet to her account accusing the organization of supporting transphobia. Trans women are women and sex work is work. I can't support organizations who exclude them, Boyle wrote in an accompanying note. The defunding is the latest flashpoint in an ongoing struggle between transgender activists and female organizations, or sorry, feminist organizations, who maintain that female-born and male-born women should remain distinct groups. One of the figures leading the, defu the funding charge against Vancouver Rape Relief was Morgan Ogre, a long-standing transgender advocate and vice president of the BC NDP. I can open any organization I want and discriminate against the people I don't like, but when I start to bring taxpayer funding into this, it makes this entire room responsible for my actions, she said. The group's city funding will dry up starting in 2020. According to the measure pulling the money, Vancouver Rape Relief cannot access City of Vancouver grants until such time as the organization makes changes to become aligned with city policies. The City of Vancouver money represents only 33,000 of Vancouver Rape Relief's more than 1 million per year budget, most of which is provided by the province of BC. The City of Vancouver money was used for educational outreach programs, which Vancouver Rape Relief said were free and accessible and available to everyone, including trans people. Uh, they also continue that men are strictly banned from spaces operated by Vancouver Rape Relief, and the organization has previously argued that their clients 
all of whom are recovering from male violence, do not feel comfortable while in the presence of someone who used to live as a man. Even deep voices, male insignia like baseball caps and boots make women, can make women nervous, wrote Lee Lakeman, a founder of the center in 2006. And more recently, in January, talk at a Vancouver Public Library, Lakeman said, To me, the discussion of inclusion is really the conduct of the backlash against feminism. And uh, in 1995, the organization was actually the subject of a of discrimination lawsuit led by Kimberly Nixon, a post-operative transgender woman who was denied Vancouver rape relief programming. Now, here's the thing. I personally, I, I do find it a little bit strange that they refused a post-op trans woman any treatment or counseling, right? I mean, to me, if I were operating a woman's shelter and someone like Blair White strode in and they said, I need help, please help me. I wouldn't feel good about turning them away. Uh, just, you know, on principle, I, I'm apparently trying to help people. Here's a person in need. With that being said, though, um, I, I think it's very strange that these feminist groups, just because this shelter doesn't accept trans people, would want, only, want to not only criticize the shelter, which of course they're free to do, but actually go so far as to deny them funding. Because again, you could say that maybe they should also be helping trans women. I would actually agree with you. But to say that it's better if they help no one than help trans women, I, I, I don't understand that. And actually, the conflict between the feminists and the shelter has gotten so bad uh, that there have actually been several, several instances where the shelter has been vandalized. And like, uh, pretty vilely, if you ask me. There's this this one post they posted to Facebook, the shelter that is, August 16th. Um, there was a rat that was nailed to one of their doors. The post reads, this is what women attending our support group for women who have been raped or battered found when they arrived at the location of their last session. Shame on the misogynist bullies who did it. Um, and there was another one actually just recently, what drew a lot of people's attention to the story. They posted on Twitter, a follow-up to the dead rat that was nailed to our door recently. This morning, we found this writing scrawled across the windows of our storefront space that we use for support and training groups. They said, hashtag misogyny. Uh, so some of the things that were written on their storefront were kill turfs, trans power, turfs go, go home, you are not welcome, and trans women are women. Um, obviously, I just want to clarify because we've expressed skepticism about like different hate crimes on this show. Um, there is a chance that these attacks were staged. I haven't seen any police reports that have been filed about it or any kind of evidence to back up the idea that this was, in fact, a rival feminist group that was doing it, not something that was self-inflicted or even maybe something that was done by just... I don't know, actual, like, just random misogynists, men, whatever, another group. Um, so take those posts however seriously you want to. But uh, the way I view this situation is kind of the way I view the whole Catholic orphanages situation. Um, a lot of people are upset that Catholic orphanages don't adopt uh, children to same-sex couples, so much so that they try to shut them down, they try to deny them federal funding. And Again, you can criticize these charities for not operating the way you want to. Absolutely. There's nothing stopping, you know, if you want to protest, if you want to try to convince these women that no, actually, you should care for trans women. I mean, and if you are this worried uh, about women being triggered by like male appearing things, then it doesn't really make sense to say you would treat trans men who might seem very much like biological men, um, you know, like whatever criticize them all you want. But at the end of the day, 
they are still doing charity work. They are still helping people, even if they're not helping all of the people you may want them to help in all of the ways you may want them to help. They are still ultimately doing good work. And I, just, I, I find it really crappy that you would be so incensed that they're doing the charity work incorrectly that you would try to prevent them from doing it like at, at all. You know, it's, it's like with the people who would rather the Catholic orphanages be shut down than them not adopt to same-sex couples. Like, would you really like this shelter have that, these fewer resources to help women than not help trans women enough? Especially considering that trans women, like, I'm sorry, are such a small percentage of the population, right? Try to see the big picture here. And um, I mean, ultimately, I think this is maybe an example of the left, specifically feminist groups, eating themselves. And I know a lot of people take joy or glee out of that, but it's like with the, uh, you know, our other story of intersectional feminism, this is one that actually just makes me feel sad because the people who are being hurt by this are incidentally just regular women, you know, rape victims, survivors who maybe don't have any political inclination one way or another of how they view, uh, you know, trans people or, or just feminism in general. They're the ones who this funding is going to be uh, withheld from. And this is actually to tie this back to the Taylor Swift equality bill that we referred to earlier. Uh, this is an example of why bills like that that make the sweeping declaration that you're not allowed to uh I guess, discriminate on the basis of gender or sex without going into any more specific details can actually end up hurting women, right? Because the article does say that right now the shelter is still receiving money from the province of BC, where Vancouver is. But I mean, if, if memory serves, BC is a pretty liberal province as well. I don't know how much longer if they continue these trans-exclusionary practices, this shelter will be able to operate. Again, do I agree with them not serving trans women? No, but I, I mean, I, I would still rather they serve some women than no women, which I think unfortunately might just be where the story ends up going. But I think uh, that's all we have to say pretty much for now. If you are watching live, then be sure to stay on the stream because we're going to be back in just a few seconds with some exclusive Q&A. But aside from that, thank you guys so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time.